Thank you for choosing to listen to the sermons of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. We meet at 2309 9th Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama. And if you're ever in our area, we would love to have you as our guest. If you live in our area, we would love to study the Bible with you. You can call us anytime to study up a Bible study or just to gain more information at 205-486-9247. Also, visit our website, 9thAvenueCofC.com, or check us out on Facebook by simply searching for 9th Avenue Church of Christ. Now we hope you'll join us for a study of God's Word as we seek to follow Him each and every day from the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. Sometimes when I'm getting ready to speak somewhere I've never been before, not all the time, but sometimes I might get on the church website or Facebook page or something and just see if there's something there about the history of the congregation. And maybe I can work something into a lesson or maybe it just gives me some insight of something that might be said or uh, experience and just to be ready for some things. And often when you read those histories... They deal with maybe uh, land purchases or building projects throughout the history. Maybe there's a list of preachers in the past, especially those who've been there a while, or maybe a list of elders that have served that congregation over the course of the years or decades that congregation has been in existence. And, and all those things are, are helpful, and it's interesting just to see those things, especially as, as an outsider or a first-timer going to a place. It's just interesting to kind of get a, a sense of some things. But have you ever wondered... What it would be like if Jesus himself were to give us that glimpse? If Jesus were to write sort of a, a history or give us a glimpse, a historical glimpse of a particular local congregation? In the New Testament, we're introduced to, to several congregations of the Lord's people, of course. You have letters to a bunch of them. You have a lot of others that are listed in the book of Acts and so on and so forth. But there's one congregation that stands out as far as how much information we have about it because it's spread out over so much of the New Testament. And it's the church at Ephesus. Of course, you have the, the beginning of it, the founding of it in Acts chapters 18, 19, and 20. And some things that happened there we'll reference in a little while. You, of course, have a letter that Paul wrote to it, the book of Ephesians, six chapters in length, that gives us a glimpse into some, some things for all of us, but gives us at least a, a hint of some things that were happening there. Timothy served as the preacher, at least for a while, at that congregation. So you have two letters written to him that, again, are written to him, but they give us a glimpse into some things he was facing, some things he needed to deal with as the preacher at Ephesus. And then you come to Revelation chapter 2. And you have a very short seven-verse letter among those letters to the seven churches addressed to that congregation at Ephesus. We don't have PowerPoint this morning, so please get out your Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 2. There's nothing to look at up here, and I'm really upset because my PowerPoint was cool. Okay, Every once in a while, I'll just go ooh or ah, and I would really appreciate it because it, it took a while. But if you'll open your Bible to Revelation chapter 2, we're going to stay in that text except for one time. We'll ask you to turn somewhere else in a little bit. But you'll have the outline there before you. If you're visiting with us on Sunday mornings this year, we're simply looking at the words of Jesus, some things that Jesus said. And, of course, most of those, the vast majority of those, are found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But there are certain things found in the rest of the New Testament that Jesus said as well. And a couple of those, we've, we've looked at one already, we're doing another this morning, are those letters to the seven churches found in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. A few weeks ago, 
We looked at the last of those letters, the church at Laodicea. I'm not going to reintroduce that material, but just to remind you that these letters, these very short seven or eight verse letters, if you were to read and study them carefully, what you really can do is get a sense of the personality and the traits of any and every congregation. While these were specific to Ephesus and Pergamon, Thyatira, and so on and so forth, there are personalities, there are statements made that are true of any and every congregation. And so they're important for us to see as God's people. Ephesus was an interesting place. You have this divine glimpse in Scripture, Acts, Ephesians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Revelation. But Ephesus also was a very important city. And so secular history fills in a a great deal for us, especially about what it was like to live there and be there in the first century world. And we'll use some of those things to go through our lesson this morning. But we're calling our lesson this morning a divine wake-up call. Because in this little short letter, Jesus gives his review, if you please, of this congregation at Ephesus. And if you were to look very carefully at that, that letter that Brighton read to us a few moments ago, you would see that Jesus gives some very strong point, positive points. If you look at verses 2, 3, and 6, you'll find at least, you can number them differently, but at least five positive qualities of the congregation. Just by way of list, you would see that they were working and patiently enduring, probably through some type of persecution. You would see that they did not bear with those who were evil. You would see they tested people who claimed to be apostles, and they were able to say that these were false apostles. Identify those who were false. You would see that they had not grown weary, even though they had to endure and bear up to remain strong. And you also see in verse 6 that they dealt with this group called the Nicolaitans, the Nicolaitans. We don't know a lot about them. All we know specifically here is that it was some group teaching some kind of false doctrine, and this group was, was not putting up with that. They would not deal with that kind of false doctrine, which really should not surprise us, considering it was to Timothy, the preacher at Ephesus, that Paul said, preach the word, be instant in season and out of season. So they had heard the truth. They knew the truth. And so Jesus is willing to say, here are the good points. Here are the things this congregation is doing that is good. And we'll come back to a couple of those in just a moment. But it's in the middle of that that Jesus gives what we sometimes call the condemnation, the negative side. And it's powerful. Verses 4 and 5. But I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will remove your lampstand if you do not repent. That's a wake up call, isn't it? I want us to think this morning specifically about those couple of verses. And I want us to think about why Jesus would say that to that congregation at Ephesus at that time. And maybe it will help us. In our day and time. We're going to notice three things this morning. In the first place, I want you to think about the fact that Jesus gives them a little history lesson. Or we may just say a a history reminder. Did you notice in those two verses that Jesus hints at the history of the congregation or the history of the people there? They had a a love at first, verse 4. And he told them in verse 5 to remember the works you had done at first. There's there's something there about at first that was important to Jesus. Now, this is the one time I want you to leave Revelation chapter 2, and we'll come back to it in just a moment. Turn back in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19, because in the book of Acts, you have the beginning of this church at Ephesus. 
And you see so much of what they had done in those founding days, if you will, of the congregation in that place. Maybe these are the things of that at first that Jesus was talking about all these years later. In Acts chapter 19, notice what's said in verse 10, for example. It tells us in Acts 19.10 that Paul was there at Ephesus for two years. And then it says, All the residents of Asia, that is Asia Minor, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now some of that would have been because Ephesus was an important city. It was on the seaport. You notice Ephesus is the first of these seven churches in Asia, partially because it was right there on the sea. It would have been natural for these letters to go there first and then to travel around. And so people came to Ephesus for commerce, for trade. It also was a center of worship, false worship, of course. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world is the temple of Diana or Artemis found in Ephesus. And so people would come to this city in order to to worship, although it was false worship. So people were coming to this city for all sorts of reasons. But they didn't leave the same way they came, did they? All of Asia, all of Asia Minor was hearing the word of the Lord because of these Christians in Ephesus. They were dedicated to the work. And then you come later in Acts chapter 19, you have an account that a lot of our children know because they're taught it in Bible class. If you look down in Acts 19, beginning in verse 18, we're told what these people gave up in order to become Christians. Also, many of those who were now believers came, verse 18, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who have practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. These people were sacrificial. They become Christians and they couldn't keep doing it. And it's not talking about magic as in like pulling a rabbit out of your hat. It's talking about dark, occultic type magic. And they couldn't keep doing those sorts of things. And just to, just to make sure they broke away from that completely, they brought the materials and burned them. So that wasn't even a part of their, their life anymore. They were sacrificial in that, a complete change. And you also come later in the chapter and you remember, well, the commerce changed because of Christians. You had this false worship of, of Artemis, Diana, in, in the city, and silversmiths made little tiny Dianas, little tiny Artemises to take home. You come, you know, have your little worship and then buy a little trinket and take it home. Well, if you're a Christian, you can't, you can't buy a false goddess and take it home and put it on your shelf and act like anything's good. And so the silversmiths become upset. The whole commerce is changing because so many people are becoming Christians, you can't sell a, a, a Diana statue anymore. You can't do that. And there's all kinds of a, a rabble that grows because these Christians are changing everything. But think about what that meant for a second. This goddess and the temple to her was such a part of the culture, it was built into the very fabric of the city itself. Diana, Artemis, was extremely important. Pergamus or Pergamum was actually the capital of Asia Minor, but Ephesus was the chief city. And Artemis or Diana was actually the goddess not just of Ephesus, but of that whole region. So you've got everything changing. But you've got Christians now who are changing the economy, and people don't like that. You've got Christians who can't even say certain things that are involved in everyday language. Great is the goddess Diana. You can't say that if you're a Christian. You've got Christians who are standing completely outside of the culture. They're sacrificial. They're preaching. They're teaching. And then 55 or 60 years passes before Revelation chapter 2 is penned. So only the very, very oldest of people at that time 
would have remembered what happened in Acts chapter 19 in Ephesus, if any of them did. A generation at least, if not two, has, has come and, and now they may hear those stories because Jesus is able to tell them, remember, He's able to remind them of at first, at first. They heard those stories, but those are just relics of the past. That was just mama's generation or granddad's generation. That was just a long time ago. And Jesus is telling them that's not just a relic of the past. He's saying those things are important because you look at what they did. You look at what they gave up. And you look at what they were able to do all those decades earlier. That's the history lesson they needed. They needed to look back at their own congregation's history, Ephesus' history, and say, look at what our forefathers, the older generations, did. Second place. Jesus speaks to them about an inward struggle. I find what Jesus says to them to be fascinating. And it's sobering. One of the most sobering statements ever made to a congregation is found at the beginning of verse 4, back in Acts 2, and we're going to stay there the rest of our time, where you have the beginning of verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, some of you have a translation there that says you've left your first love. Whichever is more accurate, it doesn't make any difference because the point is the same. Jesus is saying there's something about energy, there's something about love, there's something about motivation that's that's lacking now. All these all these years later, G. Campbell Morgan writes about this statement. He said, the emotion and the enthusiasm and the energy are lacking. But here's what makes that statement that Jesus made spectacularly important. If we were to look back at that letter, remember that list we put in our minds a moment ago? It was on the screen so you could see it. But that, that list we had in our minds a moment ago of what Jesus commended the congregation for, those good things. If you were to boil those things down, you really see Jesus commending this congregation for two things. First of all, Jesus commends them for having the right works. He says, I know your works, your labor and patience. Now that's an interesting phrase. Some of you have a translation in front of you. And that makes that a, a three-thing list, two ands, your work and your labor or toil and your patience. That's not actually what Jesus said. What the text actually reads is, I know your work, and by that I mean your toil and your patience. Are works important as Christians? Oh, yeah. Are works important as a congregation? Absolutely. They're vital. If they weren't, Jesus wouldn't have commended them for it. And so Jesus commends this congregation for having the right works to the point that they were laboring, they were exhausted, working to the point of exhaustion, and they were bearing up, they were patient. But also Jesus commends them for having the right teaching or the right doctrine or orthodoxy. They were able to see there were some who claiming claiming to be apostles, and they weren't. They saw this false teaching of the Nicolaitans, whatever that was. They were able to see that and, and root that out and stand completely against it. This congregation had the right teaching, which, by the way, should come as no surprise to us because it was to Timothy, the preacher at Ephesus, that you have the words, all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete Thoroughly equipped unto every good work. Did you notice the first thing on that list? It's profitable for doctrine. They had the right teaching. Now, is teaching important? Of course. 
for a lot of reasons. One is, if it's not, I'm out of a job. But see, teaching is really, really important. Teaching is vitally important. If teaching was not important, God would not give us the Bible. He would just say, just do whatever you want to do, and that's fine. So Jesus is not saying that works are unimportant. They are important. They're vitally important. Jesus is not saying that teaching or doctrine, having the right orthodoxy, is unimportant. It's vitally important. So what's Jesus' problem with this congregation? You've abandoned the love. You had it first. It's not an outward thing that's the problem. It's an inward thing. They were doing the right things. They were teaching, saying the right things. They were not doing it with the right heart. You know, love's an interesting thing, isn't it? Especially the way we use the word love. We love everything. We, we, we love our spouses. We love ice cream. Hopefully we love them at a different level. But we, we talk about love in all these different ways. But love, we understand, even between people, changes over time. I do premarital counseling. I'm not real good at it, but I enjoy trying to do it. And one of the things I try to, to tell a, a younger couple especially is that the love they're feeling right then is so important. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. And it's not that their love is going to die over time, but it's their love is going to change. They're going to love each other for different reasons and different ways over time because of circumstances and experiences and seeing new things and experiencing new things. That love is going to change. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah even talked about that when God told him to tell the people in Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 2 that I have loved you and your love, your love was of the bride of youth. One old translation has the love of thine espousals. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Just that excitement. But it changes over time if it's not worked on. I want you to listen to these verses. They have two things in common, one of which I'm going to make abundantly clear, and hopefully we'll figure out the other one together. Just listen to these verses. Number one, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Two, so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Three, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all, full, all the fullness of God. Four, bearing with one another in love. Five, speaking the truth in love. Six, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Seven, walk in love. Eight, peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And nine, grace me with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Now, hopefully, one thing is really obvious about all nine of those verses. Every one of them contain the word love. Do you know what the other thing they have in common is? Guess what book they're found in? Ephesians. When Paul wrote the letter to the church at Ephesus, he continually came back to the concept of love being behind all that they were doing, including such phrases as walk in love. But that was some years before the book of Revelation was written, wasn't it? The book of Ephesians was written several decades, a couple of decades or so before Revelation was. Some suggest 30 to even 40 years. And I like how Timothy Archer and Steve Ridgell put it. They said the church at Ephesus, by the time Revelation came along, quote, had protected the gospel, but had failed to protect those to whom the gospel was addressed. That's a powerful statement. 
Are works important? They are vitally important. Uh, Is the right teaching, the right doctrine important? It is vitally important. You do not have the church of our Lord. You do not have the church of Christ without the right doctrine and without the right works. But is it possible to do the right works? And is it possible to say and teach the right things and to let our heart and motivation cool off? Oh, it's very possible. It's very easy for that to happen. And so Jesus is trying to get this church at Ephesus to see this isn't an outward thing. You've got all the outward things right. It's an inward struggle. So what's the remedy? That's point number three, is a divine remedy. And in verse 5, our Lord gives three things that the congregation of Ephesus needed to do to regain that love, to kindle that fire again, a three-step remedy. Step number one is to remember. Verse 5 begins, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Notice that little word, therefore. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. He had just talked about them leaving their first love. Folks, listen carefully. If not having love behind what we do is not a sin, then they hadn't fallen. But Jesus says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember. It's an interesting term, too. That little word in the original language is actually a word that's in the present tense. This is what that means. Jesus is not saying, bring this to mind one time and then let it go. He is actually saying, keep on remembering from where you have fallen. He's trying to remind them of the things that they, they had done, the things in their history, and he used that as constant motivation. Now, that shouldn't surprise us, should it? Because we've already said a couple times, this congregation was probably facing some kind of persecution from without. They needed motivation. And so one of those motivators was to keep on remembering the things that had happened, the good things in the past, and to draw from that, to keep pressing forward, to use them as motivation. In an individual way, do you remember, if you're a Christian, how you felt right after you became a Christian? Do you remember that? I mean, you were going to teach everybody on planet Earth the gospel by Tuesday. You were going to help every person you saw by the time the sun went down. We often talk about being on fire for the Lord, right? And that's the way it is. But then, so it makes fun of your faith. Maybe you move somewhere where the church isn't as strong or where morals are in decline. Maybe you just get busy with life. That's at an individual level. Can the same thing happen to a congregation? Or over time, we forget what it's like. Over time, we fail to remember. I think it's very possible. Step one, remember and keep on remembering. Step two, Jesus says, is to repent. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent. Repent. Now, this is different. The word remember, I told you, is in the present tense. Keep on remembering. Keep bringing these things to mind. Keep using this motivation. The word repent is not that way. The word repent here is a one-time action. Jesus is telling. Are you listening carefully? 
Jesus is telling not just the leaders, not just Timothy or whoever's preaching at this time, it wouldn't be Timothy, it would be later, but whoever's preaching at the time, he's not just telling one or two people, he is telling the entire congregation at Ephesus to make a serious one-time break with the lack of love and move on. Turn it around. This is not a process. This is a decision. And if it weren't wrong, he wouldn't tell them to repent. Jesus is saying, you've forgotten the heart, the motivation. And as a congregation, they need to remember. Individually, when we lose that fire, sometimes our Christianity can wane just a little bit. And we need to repent of that. Congregationally, the same can be true. Step one, keep on remembering. Step two, make a sharp break, repent. Step three, return. Do the works you did at first. That's an interesting little phrase, isn't it? Because we've already said a couple of times, Jesus commended this congregation for their works. But the key is that phrase, at first. Remember or return and do the works you did at first. He's not telling them to stop standing up for truth. He's not telling them to stop you know, pushing away false teachers. He's not telling them to stop bearing up and being patient. Those things are good. But he's saying you're forgetting the why. And he might even be saying you're not having to give up as much as those people did back in Acts chapter 18, 19, and 20. How many of you have had to burn books? How many of you have had to change the economy of your time? He may be saying that. But for certain, he's saying, there's something lacking behind what you are doing. Individually, can that happen to us? David Roper, writing about individual Christians in this context, he said this, When we first became Christians and were filled with enthusiasm, maybe we arrived early at worship services with smiling faces, visited with other Christians as much as we possibly could, told everyone we met what Jesus had done for us, looked for opportunities to help, and accepted any challenge to serve. Now that time has gone by, those first deeds may be only a memory. And Christianity, our Christianity, may have suffered. That's true individually. It can be. But can it not also be true congregationally? That we need to remember and return to those things that have been done. As an individual Christian, over time, do you you just kind of slide by? Maybe it's time to dive headlong into service again. Maybe, Maybe it's time to shake a few more hands. Maybe it's time to give another smile. Maybe it's time to stop being critical and start being encouraging again. Step one, keep on remembering Step two, make that one-time decision that this is it. I'm going to repent. And step three is to get about doing something. Return to the works with the same motivation, the love that you did at first. You know, the warning Jesus gives to that congregation at Ephesus, if they were not willing to remember, to repent, and return, it could not be any more serious. He said, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now that picture of a lampstand, Revelation chapter 1 makes it clear, speaking of the individual congregations. And he's saying, if, if you don't do these things, 
I'm going to remove that lampstand. And folks, that's interesting if you think about it. I, I, know, I know it's past 1130. I know you probably have a roast burning in the oven. But please stick with me. Please stick with me. When Jesus said, I will remove the lampstand, I want you to think about what he was not saying. He was not saying, necessarily, that he was going to put these people to death. That's not what he was saying. He was also not saying that they might not keep coming together and calling themselves a church. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is, from his perspective, from the divine perspective, that group that meets in Ephesus is no longer my people. I've pulled their lampstand and they don't even know it. Folks, that's tragic. That's absolutely tragic. I want to read you a quote. And then I'll tell you where it came from. The church is a perfect unity. Working in harmony in all of its labors. And we are expecting great things in the future. By continuing in the doctrine of Christ and the apostles. That'd be wonderful to be said of the ninth of your church of Christ, wouldn't it? It was. That statement is from the 1929 Church of Christ directory of what became this congregation. Then meeting at Ninth Avenue and by the road. It is not a call. We do not have a call. The church should not have a call. I don't have a call to try to become the church again in the 20s or the 50s or the 80s or the 90s or yesterday. Our call in Scripture is to become the first century church, the pattern that Jesus laid out for us to do as far as our worship, our organization, the plan of salvation, and so on and so forth. Where Scripture speaks, we speak. Where we're silent, where it's silent, we are silent. That's, that's our call is to do those things. But if Jesus were to write a history of this congregation, what would he say? There are some people in this room who, when I asked that question, what came to your mind was something like this. I bet what Jesus would say is, well, best days are behind us. I've been here 50, 60, 70 years. The best, I, boy, I remember way back when, when brother so-and-so did this and sister so-and-so did that. And the best days are behind You know what? That may be true. I have no earthly idea. I'm not Jesus. But I know what Jesus told the church at Ephesus. And he didn't tell them the best days are behind you. He told them there are some things that need to be worked on. And if you don't do them, I'll remove the lampstand. What's the implication? If you do them, you're going to be my people. And the light will keep shining from his perspective which is all that really matters. Two challenges. Challenge number one is for those who are older. I'm not going to put an age on that because I like my job. But if you consider yourself older, please, 
please do not just pull back into the shadows and say, you know what? I'm going to turn things over to those younger people now because I've had my day. I've had my time. I've done what I could. My time has passed. It's time to let somebody else do the work. Please show me the scripture that gives a retirement date from Christianity. There's not one. Now, you may not be able to do everything you used to do. We understand there are physical difficulties that come and and different things. I understand that. Anybody understands that. But Jesus does not allow us to retire from Christianity. Whatever you can do, remember what you did. Repent of not doing them and get back to work. We need your wisdom. We need your encouragement. We need your memories. We need your strength. We need your biblical knowledge. We need what you have. Challenge two. To those who are younger... The older Christians sitting in this room and generations gone by deserve to be honored. Now, methods change, technologies change, ideas change. And sometimes a younger generation comes along with some different methods or technologies, not changing anything in Scripture, but they just have ideas that maybe help us reach young people or help us to reach out online or whatever. But listen... There are people sitting in this room who have encouraged more people than an entire generation has because of years and experience and work, and they deserve to be honored. And generations gone by deserve to be honored. The congregation that now calls itself the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ has baptized hundreds and hundreds of people throughout the years. We supported missionaries that have baptized thousands and maybe well beyond that around the world. There is no way to calculate how many families and individuals have been helped financially, have been helped in relationships, have been helped in marriages, have been helped spiritually throughout. There is no way to calculate those things. And so those of us who are younger, we need to keep working and do what we can. We need to honor what has happened. Remember and listen to those stories and not hear them as as a relic of the past, of just a, a bygone era, but know a way to motivate us when we face difficulty so this place keeps going. Is your heart still in it? I believe this congregation does good works. I really do. We could always do more. We always see ideas and areas we could do better. But I think if we made a list of all the works this place actually does, if the screens actually worked, we'd fill up the screens. We couldn't read them. There'd be so many. I firmly believe that our elders make certain that what is taught from the pulpit and Bible classes is the truth, that we teach the right things. We make certain that we hold to the pattern of sound doctrine. We make certain, remember, it was the elders at Ephesus that Paul said, take heed under the doctrine. And I have no doubt that that our elders make certain that when I preach, when Tyler preaches, when a guest speaker comes, when we stand before a Bible class in whatever age that the truth is taught, folks, we are doing the right things. We are teaching the right things. Is our heart still in it? Because if it's not, Jesus says the lampstand is gone. And if I ever do anything, anything to cause that lampstand to be gone, oh, do I need to be forgiven of that. Individually. Is your heart still in it? Is your heart still in it? Aren't you glad 
that Jesus did not just write off that church. But he said, you can repent and I'll forgive you. And maybe that's what you need this morning. Maybe. Maybe. It's what we all need this morning. And if you're ready to answer that call, we invite you to come. We stand and sing to encourage you.